0: It was interesting because they would actually try their hardest not to speak English to me at home. So my grandmother was living with us and at home was all Chinese because they were worried that if I spoke English to them that I would learn from their habits. The case that's being made is an economic argument, right? That somehow that we need to add this unprecedented level of like subjectivity because the rule is now no longer, hey, are you actually a public choice? The vast majority of immigrants are not eligible for any of the public benefits anyways.
1: Xiao Wang is the co-founder and CEO of the Seattle-based startup Boundless. It's an immigration company with a mission to empower families to navigate the immigration system more confidently, rapidly and affordably. In 2018, they received the Torch Award for Business of the Year from the Better Business Bureau. Xiao's credentials include leadership roles at Amazon, Go, Providence Equity, NYC Department of Education, and McKinsey. Xiao holds a BA from Stanford University and an MBA from Harvard Business School. On top of that, He is an immigrant himself. His family relocated from China to the U.S. when he was a child. We are very excited to have him here on our show. Please welcome Xiao Wang.
0: Thanks, Sadia. I'm excited to be here.
1: So before we begin, I think it will be extremely helpful to get a sense of your background story. When did your family immigrate to the U.S.?
0: Yeah, so my mother first immigrated... In 1987 or so, my father came in 88 and I came in 89.
1: How old were you when you came?
0: So I was three and a half.
1: I was reading about your parents and also the correspondence that you sent me talked about your parents and their life in China. And I remember you mentioned that your parents had their education halted when they were in middle school, when the government had, you know, shut down the schools and sent children to work in factories and farms instead But they still found a way to learn and study on their own. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And was that something that led them to move to the U.S.?
0: Yeah, it's an incredible story. And it's something that when you hear it in retrospect, you're just amazed about the sort of resilience and desire of my mother and father to learn in a way that... Goes well beyond what I think I could ever do myself, Mm. which is, yeah, that the schools were shut down for the Chinese Cultural Revolution while my father was finishing up elementary school and my mother just started middle school. And basically, they were sent to farms in the beginning and later factories. And they ended up, after a full day of working in the fields, they would be. In their at that time, grass huts, essentially yeah. reading contraband curriculum books by candlelight at night, and it was actually really dangerous they They uh, had friends who were were badly injured when they you know the candle they fell asleep, and the candle lit their 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 hut on fire, um, as well as other you know, difficulties. and can you imagine just trying to continue your studies when you had no idea when or if the schools are going to be open again. And so they ended up going through this whole process through, you know, self-teaching all the way through basically the completion of an undergraduate degree, Um, because when the schools opened back up, uh, they were allowed to test into uh, graduate school. And so they went straight from basically for my father would be sixth grade into a master's program.
1: And once they completed their graduate programs, did they move to the U.S. then for a job? What was the transition like when they moved from China to the U.S.?
0: Yeah, so my mother had the opportunity first, and it was part of a government basically visiting or exchange scholar program. And so she had always heard amazing things about education in the West and had always wanted to, to go study out there. And so the government let only her leave to go yeah. first to Canada and then later to the U.S. before then eventually allowing my father to also leave the country and join an education program with her in Arizona before finally relenting and letting me come over as well. So it was sequential in terms of, to be blunt, it was to to make sure that the, the person would eventually go back to the country.
1: So why did they let you then? Because if the idea was that they wanted your mom to go back to China, what changed their mind?
0: The, the government slowly became more open over the years, and my family went through a lot of pain and, 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 and perseverance of trying to find the right person to approve my, my exit visa.
1: And when you were in China, who were you staying with when, while your parents were in the U.S.? Uh,
0: so I stayed with my grandparents primarily and then hmm. rotated between my, my, uh, my aunts and uncles. And so my father had five sisters that all lived in Nanjing with me. And so I would rotate through their families as well.
1: So when you came here as a kid, you were only three and a half when you came. You basically started school in the U.S. So what was that experience like as a child? Do you remember any of that?
0: Because I was so young, it, it was like different different experiences sort of stick out as opposed to a whole story. Hmm. Like a lot of Asian or immigrant families, they basically prioritize what was the best school possible for me, especially hmm. given their own background and relationship to school. So I eventually, my first memory of school was I was uh, part of a Christian academy in Arizona because that was the best kindergarten like program in the area. And I remember distinctively a couple of things. One is that when you don't know English that well, Bible study is really difficult. They actually, it was a, it was a program that had that, that allowed for corporal punishment, and so you know my parents were fine with that because they thought I was pretty well behaved. What they failed to realize is when I didn't understand the language and I'm trying to study, uh, you know, an arcane text, uh, I would fall asleep regularly, and so there were definite moments where you know I was taken out and spanked because I was you know doing this type of behavior so it created a very, like, love-hate relationship with with a number of the different elements of the school. But um, over time, though, like, you know, I always grew up in areas that did not have um, very many other Chinese families, which is different than than you know a lot of the people, uh, other other immigrants um, around my age, and so like. Yeah, even eventually when we settled near Seattle, it was in the suburb that we we were across the street from a dairy farm, and a horse farm, and yeah, these other places. And so, yeah, I I was basically fully immersed in America, and my parents really wanted me to be able to grow up without an accent and be able to properly communicate with those around and Mm -hmm. be as typical American as possible. Like I was the only (laughs) I was the only person, Chinese uh immigrant to like play T ball, right? Or like these (laughs) these things that my parents had no idea what the rules were or anything, but they knew that, oh, other other American families nearby sent their kids to do this. Or like Boy Scouts. (laughs) Again, no idea what all of this was, but oh yeah, other kids did this. So yeah. You can do it too.
1: So Shah, in what ways were your parents adapting American culture at home? Like, would they speak English with you more frequently? Or were there any other ways that they were um, assimilating in American culture, especially at home?
0: It it was interesting because they would actually try their hardest not to speak English to me at home. So my grandmother was living with us and and at home is all Chinese because they were worried that if... I spoke English to them that I would learn from their habits.
1: That's so fascinating because, on the one hand, they really want you to be as American as can be, and on the other hand, they are also trying to preserve their language and culture in some way.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and it's—it was always a—it it was a hard balance right? because there's sort of natural tendencies, uh, and I have, you know, very shared experiences with a lot of other immigrants where you know there was really like no tv no nintendo yeah that my my every summer break i actually brought out a schedule of like when do i wake up when do i study you know math when do i study chinese when do i practice piano yeah and i had an hour and a half every day of being able to play with friends and yeah, you know, that that was like a, a you know a cherished block of time for me and then everything else was like very very structured and rigorous and you had the standard like if you get 97 on the test, the question is really around like, hey, what happened?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Um, I do that to my kids. I, I really feel bad for them, but that's that's how I treat them. It's unfortunate that no matter what they get, it's it's never... Um good, uh which is wrong in many ways. But at the same time, I think it's just immigrant mentality. We come with this notion of how we have to make things work here, and we know that we have to work probably 10 times harder than everybody else um to achieve the same level of success that other people will achieve, right?
0: It was interesting where it was always matter-of-fact talk to me when I was younger that like if I ever we're trying to compete with a a, a real American, so you know, a, a for anything. And I was similar; um, I would lose. And it was, you know, shown in sort of the ways that my parents' careers were stunted and passed over for promotions or like difficulties, you know, in their job and them trying to make it. it was, it was very, it was, it was just always told to me that look, you're going to lose, and so you have to be like so much better that it would make no sense for them to like not pick you.
1: But do you agree with that mindset? Now that you're a successful entrepreneur, when you look back, do you think that is true even today?
0: I think there's two things here. Do I think it's true? And then do I think like, how would I, is as I'm expecting my first child in uh in, in a few weeks. Or oh, really, congratulations. Any day now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, of like, what, well, uh, of like what I would do, right? Yeah. You know, to to my parents' credit, they really try to be open about you know new ways of parenting, new concepts. I trying to like you know take the t-ball and soccer examples. Like they tried to really get me as immersed in the American culture as possible. I would say that fundamentally, it it, it is going to be true that there are certain people. That the people naturally have different levels of privilege and different levels of opportunity, and I think that I am now uh, with my wife in a position of privilege and opportunity and power that my parents never had, and so therefore, like that there are more ways and opportunities for our child to be able to you know find their own path and and more freedom about how they wanted to do this, freed from like, you know, certain economic and and other constraints. Um, that wasn't really present for me.
1: Given that premise, how will your parenting style be different from your parents' parenting style?
0: The the hard part for someone like me who like tries to hyper optimize everything in my life. It's very clear already, even before I'm a parent, that although there are clearly bad ways of. Being a parent, there's hmm. no like optimal or perfect way.
1: But I'm sure you've thought through it and you have this idea. We all do. Like when I was having my kids, I was like, I, I, I would think about things that I would do with them and I wouldn't, although I don't know how much of it I've been able to do. But is there this idea of what kind of parent you will be in terms of its focus on education, education? Um, uh, transmitting your values and your um, culture to them?
0: I'm more able to actually name and define things that matter. And so, you know, for example, like I truly believe in this idea of, you, know, you call it intellectual vitality or curiosity or some just inherent love of exploration and new things. And my parents did a masterful job of encouraging that in me, but they never like defined it. Right? And so I was mm-hmm. I was congratulated for, let's say, doing well on tests right? or like, you know, competing well in 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 math competitions, because, of course, I did math competitions. It wasn't about like, I just want you to like really love like learning. Or like love this like journey of learning and and and, and new things, whatever field that may take you. Um, same thing with like let's call it music, right? I mean, you know, I there's many times where, yeah, I, I got reasonably good at piano, probably around age eleven or twelve. And then I decided that that wasn't cool, right? I couldn't, uh, once I hit puberty, especially like, you know, girls weren't impressed by people who could play (laughs) classical piano and like I wanted to, to, yeah, there's a lot of angst as, you know, me growing up, you know, between my name, my size, Um, I, you know, I, I started school a year early. And so not only am I relatively small in general, but I was small for my, for my grade, and other aspects that, like, made me want to, to do other types of activities. And my parents would, you know, kind of guilt me into, like, look how much effort you've already put into this. Like, do you really want to throw it away, et cetera. There is something about, like, grit and perseverance that I want to, like, be able to instill in my kid, but probably in a different way.
1: But do you think it's innate? Now, some people may say that these are acquired skills. Others think it's like predisposed, genetically predisposed. I believe these skills are acquired. What what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think these are like, I believe that every person is, you know, capable of doing fantastic things. And so... Yeah, I wouldn't even call these skills. I think these are mindsets. And mindsets can be molded and, and shaped by the, the environment that people are around. And so definitely, I think any person can, you know, can develop, you know, grit and perseverance. Any person can develop, like, and I think that children are naturally, like, and I don't have a lot of experience with babies yet, but even when I, like, they're intensely curious about everything around them. And so it's like up to me as the parent to then be able to foster and encourage that curiosity.
1: I want to go back, Xiao, and talk a little bit about your name, because you said that it was, you were insecure about your height and then your name. I've seen that in East Asian and South Asian communities, people when they come to the U.S., they anglicize their names or they'll anglicize their kids' names. And that's a common practice because the the assumption is that, you know, it will be easier for uh, the other person to pronounce uh, the name. You're not challenging somebody's way of thinking and you're not imposing your identity on somebody else. And so it's easy to do that. Now, I have a very different take on it. I feel like name is such an integral part of one's identity. And when we change our names. We are essentially dumbing down America because we are not giving people the benefit of the doubt that they can pronounce our names and they can learn our names. A lot of people struggle with it. So how did that insecurity manifest in your personality growing up? And was there a time when you started accepting your name or are you still struggling with this insecurity around it?
0: It's a lifelong journey. I would say that it's come in a couple of distinct phases. Mm -hmm. So growing up, I had the opportunity once I came to the US, my parents actually asked me at one point if I wanted to change my name and pick up an American name because everyone around, all their Chinese friends around them did. And I said no. I love my name. Why would I change my name? <laughs> this is like me at age five or six, and so and so there it stuck. Um, I would say that interesting at my wedding, people called me by different names. So everyone who knew me through I would call sophomore year of college would pronounce my first name like S H A W, like Shaw. And I picked that because I got tired of constantly correcting people through elementary school, and so I just like said, oh, it's like Shawshank Redemption. People got it. It was just easier. Mm. And then it wasn't until I met my wife, actually, and she's like, wait a second, that, that's not how your name is pronounced. And so from junior year onwards, um, I, like, I would say, like, started pronouncing it the way that it was supposed to be pronounced, which is more like a xiao. So it's interesting how the people that know me at different places have, have different content. And then now, actually, as I after I've started Boundless and, and then as I've you know, done more interviews and press engagements, my new name question is around my last name. So it's spelled mm-hmm. W-A-N-G. And in Chinese, it's actually pronounced Wong, like almost like it was spelled W-O-N-G, so it, which, which is how some people end up phonetically spelling it. Um, and that's the same for every Chinese name that's A-N-G. Uh, but then you have people like Andrew Yang, who's really supposed to be like Andrew Young, and all of these concepts. So it's like we've been, you know, conditioned as a culture that uh, oh, because of the way that it was first transformed from Chinese to Roman characters, they picked a instead of o, like that's just the way it's going to be pronounced. And so that's that's the latest one that I don't like. I don't know. Now I'm going to have to sort of figure out like what I'm supposed to like. Teach my son like how to pronounce his last name. do Do we want to do it in the way that like he has to correct people, you know, the rest of his life because they hear it in a certain way?
1: Are you going to give him a more like American name, or is it going to be a Chinese name?
0: We haven't decided yet. We know three out of his four names. So it's going to be my last name, which is going to be Chinese. My wife is half Korean, half Mexican. so there's something around like people in her family. And her, her name, so there'll be a Korean name, a Hispanic name, and a, you know, a Chinese name.
1: So you have a lot of options then.
0: The last three are set. The first name we've done.
1: No, but this is so interesting because, as I said, for me, like, so I didn't know how to pronounce your name, but it was simple. I went online, I Googled it, I looked up the pronunciation, and I was able to pronounce. So that's something that I really have struggle understanding as to why is it so difficult for someone to pronounce somebody else's name which may not be familiar name or maybe from a different culture
0: yeah like uh it, it fundamentally it's a it's a comfort and smoothness and ex and, and and effort thing right like you went mm-hmm. online you like actually looked it up you maybe listened to the the Google, like, little, little, like, pronunciation. It's amazing. And thank you. And, and you know, for the recipients, like, it's wildly appreciated. Yeah, I, I, it's far for me to, to judge, like, you know, how someone who, like, sees an X and just is completely thrown off by <laughs> what that can mean. But I do think that, you know, the, the name thing is, you know, it does set certain stereotypes about the person. Um, mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's been to my advantage. Right. People are like, oh, he must be smart. He must be like good at certain things. I mean, in some ways, it's my disadvantage where like, you know, I, I worked for a private equity firm and management consulting firms and they do like projects or work with companies all around the country. And, you know, like it's maybe the first time that someone has encountered people from my background before. And so, yeah, you know, I do think that it's become something unique um, and something that definitely I've embraced now. I think name is like super, super powerful in so many ways, and they've done all these studies about how different types of names are predictive or actually determinative and influence like the future path of the the, the individual and how others perceive them. And so it's uh it it's something that you know hopefully gets better as. Our country starts embracing, you know, a wider diaspora of names, and then it becomes much more about the individual as much as like the whatever the their parents were feeling on that day.
1: Exactly. Now I want to talk about something else first before we move to your company, Boundless. I, I want to talk about that. But before that, I want to talk about this concept of model minority, something that many um, Asian immigrants hear, right? What are your thoughts on this idea? And how do you think it serves to explain the role of Asian immigrants and their children in American society?
0: The Asian narrative is fascinating, and I wish I have more background on it. You know, World War II, or earlier in the 20th century, Asians were put in the same category as, like, dogs in a lot of places, right? Or they were, like, you know, put away into internment camps. There were all of these, like, there was some, like, extreme prejudices if, if against, against Asians and especially Chinese people to the point where there was actually a law passed right, to, to, to prevent Chinese from immigrating to America and only Chinese. Um, and somehow, in the last 60 years, the East Asian cohort, and I probably, I'll, probably I'll include South Asian to the extent that it covers India only. The non-South East Asian group of Asians has somehow changed the narrative around who they are and how they're perceived by the rest of American society. And I would love to like know and learn more when I have time about like exactly how that happened, where like it turned into a, a these are, you know, horrendous people and should not be in this country and like yeah. eat each other and are like devils to, okay, they're like really nerdy. They're like <laughs> good at math. Um, they uh, you know are quiet and do well in school, but like are are you know unable to rise above middle management, yeah, which is a it's just a fascinating like p- place that they eventually ended up yeah i I think that there's two things that that come to mind when i when I think of this model minority piece. um the first is that it is wildly like i' wouldn't call it unfair, but wildly biased against. The people who are of who, who look like me but come from far uh, less privileged backgrounds. And mm-hmm. the uh, the the if you are you know, either Southeast Asia or you are a lower class and poor and often spent multiple generations in the international districts of various cities or Chinatowns, like, you are like both facing similar challenges as a lot of the low income black and Hispanic populations do, yeah. but are have a, a wildly different expectation placed upon
1: What do you mean by that? Um, what kind of expectation
0: that when, when you know applying sorry when applying for colleges or grants or job opportunities, et cetera, that there are, are those stories that people are told that are more that that are of the type that expects you to be you know wildly good at academics and have Mm -hmm. very high sat scores and you know have a certain type of education above all else upbringing That may not exist.
1: So this is a good segue into talking about your company, Boundless. How did you find inspiration to found Boundless? And like, what's the backstory behind this company? And can you tell us a little bit about what Boundless does? Yeah.
0: So when I came over to the country and my parents... um, we're trying to stay in the US we were trying to apply for permanent residency or green cards and at that time the company made my family do it on our own and so we had to go find a lawyer and it was someone that my dad asked around and uh, had a colleague who had a family member who knew someone who who basically used this lawyer um and so we trusted our entire life and the future of our family to this virtual stranger and gave them almost five months of rent money to do all the paperwork. And we did this because the process is terrifying. The stakes are so high. Lang- language is not our friend, and it's 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 incomprehensible often to even people who do speak English natively. Uh, all these it's government true. forms, and and you have one shot at determining the whole rest of your life. And. This is a story that's just echoed time and time again by, by millions of families trying to not only start a new life for themselves in this country, but also having to like get through this gauntlet that's the government immigration process. But I am also ashamed to admit that I always just took this for granted, that I would meet other immigrants and other families who had to go through this. And... We almost joked that it was like an oppression Olympics because people would compete on who had the worst immigrant immigration experience. And it was almost a badge of honor to have the most ridiculous thing happen as you're trying to make it through this process.
1: So, Xiao, your parents came as students to the U.S., right? So they were probably looking to go from student visa to what? Uh, What was the process?
0: So it was from an F1 to uh, an H1B. Yeah. Hmm. And then later to permanent residency.
1: Yeah, that's the process that my husband and I followed because we came here like for college as well. So it was F1, H1B, green card, and then citizenship. And that's a long process. It takes almost like, I mean, we came in early 2000s. So it, it took us like almost eight years to complete the process from where we started and when we got our um, passports. So it's, it's a long and arduous process. Talking about present um, situation, what is going on with immigration system in the U.S. and where we are um, right now? And what are some of the challenges that you're seeing with new applicants, bureaucracy and Every day there's a new, you know, amendment to some past law. Um, So how are things now?
0: It is a period of unprecedented uncertainty and change in the immigration process, which is terrifying for people who are caught in the middle of it. We spent all this money on immigration attorneys, assumed that everyone else does. And it wasn't until about three, three and a half years ago that, I really asked the question of why and why is immigration so hard? And so then I started interviewing hundreds of of families and immigration lawyers and government and policy experts and realized that this is an information problem there's only two groups of people that know what's going on. You have the federal government, who, as we just said, is is trying deliberately or not to make it even more complex and change the rules on virtually a weekly basis. And then you have uh, immigration attorneys that uh, financially benefit from the ability that, that no one else knows what's going on. And I would argue that in an era where technology has gotten a pretty bad reputation over the last couple of years for really not solving meaningful problems. That this is exactly what technology and data is meant to do, which is to democratize information and to give everyone the tools and support that they need. And so that's where like, I realized that I, I learned too much and I couldn't not do what I'm doing now, which has started and uh, growing boundless, uh, where we are finally trying to be that first partner for immigrants as they go through the process. Now, specifically, you know, it, you know, I would say that the immigration policy perspective is challenging because fundamentally it is very hard to get comprehensive immigration reform passed. The last time the law changed was in 1965. They almost passed something in 2013, but then again, it it got defeated in the last moment. And so because the actual law like is very hard to change, what the current administration has been very clear about is that they want to reduce immigrants, right? And then immigration in general. And so therefore they are trying all sorts of alternative ways to basically build the wall that matters, which is not the physical one at the border, but the like one that keeps people from being able to legally come to this country, legally find mm-hmm. employment, and then eventually settle and, and put their roots down in this country.
1: And that's true because it's not just, there are so many different kinds of immigration options that this government is trying to cut down on. So it's not just one form of immigration that it's trying to reduce. Let's talk about boundless. For someone who is trying to get his or her immigration process sorted out in the U.S., how will Boundless ease their pain of going through this process?
0: We currently have two products that we offer. We help with marriage green cards. So you're a U.S. citizen or green card holder and you fall in love with someone who isn't and you want to either bring them to the country or keep them in the country. Uh, mm-hmm. And we also help with naturalization. So if you're um, a current green card holder and you want to be a U.S. citizen. Over time, we're going to expand to, you know, all the 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 various immigration forms, but for for these categories, what we do is, instead of trying to figure out how to navigate all of these complex government forms, or face the trade-off of spending thousands and thousands of dollars you may not have for an attorney, wh- what we do is we, we simplify and guide you through the whole process. So you online, we translate all the, the language into words that people can actually understand and answer. So we collect your information and then all of our families get a independent immigration attorney as well that answers their questions and then helps make sure that the application is correct and then our team assembles everything all the forms in the exact way that the government wants to basically make you finally feel i'm going to say that anyone feels delighted about their immigration process but at least <laughs> that they feel confident
1: and this is like it's available everywhere. Is it like it's not specific to Seattle, right? Correct.
0: We help, helped over 3,000 families last year all around the world uh, to a point where now we, you know, there's a couple of things I'm really proud of, right? So first is that we have 100% approval rate, uh, which mm-hmm. is something that's very important, right? If you're going to entrust us with all of your details and your future of your life, then uh, we're, you know, fully committed to, to, to making sure that you have the best chance of success. And then the second part is that because we process more family cases than any single law firm uh, for the situations, we now have data that helps mm-hmm. us be able to influence policy, but also help people live better lives. So we now know mm-hmm. like how long the process takes and how much it varies by zip code and area so people can actually decide, hey, yeah, you know, if I move 20 minutes away, I may save six months on my immigration timelines. Yeah, you know, that wow, may not yeah. be worth it. Um, or also, like, we are, you know, making a stand towards bad immigration policy. So the most recent one that just got the green light from the Supreme Court is called the public charge rule, mm-hmm. uh, um, which is probably the most disruptive piece of, policy that the USCIS can do.
1: And it is going to disproportionately impact working class immigrants. That's the irony of it.
0: In some ways, it's brilliant marketing, right? Because they say, oh, we're keeping people from like being public, who are public charges from coming to the U.S., which majority of America agrees with.
1: It really is confounding to me how it was okay 100 years ago or 200 years ago, but it's not okay anymore.
0: Even more so than that, like the case that's being made is an economic argument, right? That's somehow that we need to add this unprecedented level of like subjectivity because the rule is now no longer, hey, are you actually a public choice? Most, the vast majority of immigrants are not eligible for any of the public benefits anyways. It's adding a new 19 page form with 20 additional like checks and we have put together it's a uh, hundred additional pages of evidence of things that they've never measured before, right? Your medical history, your education diplomas, your credit score, you know, all of these, your 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 work history in different ways, like all of these criteria that they don't actually have a clear way of judging. And it's basically going to you know do two things. One, it's going to depress the usage of people who actually need and are eligible for public services. The enrollment or usage of like public clinics has gone way down in immigrant communities because they're afraid they're caught by this rule. And you know, as we all know, like preventative care is some of the most economically you know, beneficial actions that people can do with their health. Also, it is going to dramatically slow down the process because now these, uh, the government has to review, you said, over 100 additional pages of evidence and make a judgment call that they've never had to make before in a in, in, in process that like already green cards and citizenships across the board timelines have doubled since 2016. This is going to just further gum up the process. And so like that's the part that like, you know, from even from an economic argument. And so we actually put together a legal brief uh, that major employers across the country signed up on. So including Hmm. like Microsoft and Twitter and, you know, Hewlett Packard and Warby Parker and Levi Strauss and all these like brands and companies are like, this is really bad for the American economy.
1: So let's talk about that, Shao, because I on my show, we try to make a model argument, which I think. I really strongly believe should always supersede economic argument for immigration because I feel like economic argument is in a way more um selfish but at the same time I I do realize that that's the kind of argument that resonates with people who, uh, whose ancestors came to the U.S. and they don't remember anymore the pain of going through the process or being an immigrant or even second generation. If you could make an economic argument for immigration, what would that be?
0: I say that fundamentally... America is where it is, or you can apply this anywhere in the world, but like America has only been able to achieve what it's done because people have looked to it as a place where you can achieve your dreams in ways that you can't in in most other places in the world. And so Mm -hmm. there are many moral arguments to be made around the current situation and the travel bans that are, you know, being extended now to.
1: Six more countries.
0: Okay, including Nigeria, which is like
1: Yeah, one of the largest countries in Africa.
0: Exactly. Um, but but like there's a lot of more arguments to be made. But like what we're taking on is the fact that like from the same lens and justification that the administration is making for these policies, we're saying that those justifications don't hold water. Right, that like, if you look at all the stats about the economic benefits of immigration, about the value of immigrants, about um, yeah, you know, the actual increase in in uh, earnings, in tax revenues, in you know, local like community to national level, about you know, rising up in the immigration ladder to have more security about where you can live and where you can work, it all points to the fact that like. Adding these constraints and adding, you know, additional paperwork and inefficiency and lowering, you know, immigration and, and, and dampening usage of services that people are eligible for is fundamentally bad for the American mm-hmm. economy. And, you know, I think that, you know, both of our families right, and, you know, aspired for something in in the U.S., right? Like that that, that this country means something and this ideal means something. And I, you know, personally, you know, love what the concept of America, like, symbolizes. And when I see stats now that uh, international student rates have declined for three years in a row, uh, where they just released that, oh, hey, now, like, Indian immigration to the US hasn't grown but it has almost tripled in Canada over the last couple of years uh, where you you see you know all of these people around the world now choosing other places and other locations to chase their dreams. It's not going to hurt America you know five or ten years from now but 20 years from now 25 years from now like it's going to make a meaningful impact when you look at all the stats about the fact that first and second generation immigrants you know are you know more entrepreneurial they actually run like half of the you know largest companies in this country um, are you know adding to their and contributing to the community in all these different ways that like you know, this is something that is an existential problem for this country
1: Absolutely. Now, Xiao, if, if people were to, uh, if they wanted to find more information about Boundless, uh, where should they look? or oh, Is there a website they can go on? How do they contact you if they want to?
0: Yeah. So our website is uh, boundless.com. So dot com. And on our website, we have hundreds of articles and resources that talk about both New policies, so we we write about how all of these different changes may or you know may or may not impact your lives, as well as how what are all the different processes of immigration and what documents do you need and how do you you know show different kinds of evidence. So our goal is to truly be a hub for all immigrants, and right? that mm-hmm. we can actually you know in this in this world where like I would say immigrants have been systematically taken advantage of because of their lack of security in their process and their position. What we're trying to be is like a trusted resource for everything that you can need.
1: And do you have any advice for young adult immigrants who are gearing up to start their own independent lives um, and break into their respective careers?
0: I was taught early on to find my passion and then I'll never work a day in my life. And I think that that's terrible advice
1: <laughs> because,
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. I, we all can point to that friend who knew they wanted to be a pediatrician from when they were 10 years old and, you know, has, has pursued this one thing and loves it and is awesome. And I'm so jealous. But for 99% of us, it's not that way, right? There's not like this one thing out there that's, oh, once I find it, I'll finally realize that I have, you know, found what I've been put on this world to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's far more important to try to maximize your own personal learning and growth. And you know, so when you're evaluating between different opportunities, thinking about what to do next, it's really fundamentally around like, am I growing? Am I growing as fast as I can? Right? Am I learning as much as I can? And, and I have found the best way to do that is by saying yes to interesting opportunities that make me really uncomfortable, because the like what has has always been the case for me is that like the what I then find out and what I then experience, when I then learn from saying yes to something, I've never regretted. And so over time, as you say yes to more things, as you pick up more tools, as you you know, learn new skills and, and ways of thinking, then you'll start actually finding that you enjoy certain things more and certain things mm-hmm. less. And it's mm-hmm. through that learning journey that you eventually figure out, um, you know, what gets you really excited.
1: So finally, as I end each podcast, I always ask my guests um, in their words, if they could describe America, it, like you could describe it in a word or a sentence or a phrase, how would you describe it?
0: This is gonna sound super cliche, but in my mind, America is aspirational. There's always something here and right, that you can aspire to be or to become or to grow into or to you know experience. And that no matter all of these constraints, from institutional, from structure, from other like disadvantages, the that, that the spirit of this country um, is still lies on like, people aspiring to become yeah, the best version of themselves that they can be.
1: That's true. Thank you so much, Yao. This was wonderful. And best of luck with the baby. It's an exciting time for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We have a Patreon. If you want to support, you can check link on our website and social media. And also tune in For next week's episode when we will bring another amazing story and if you have time write us a good review and subscribe that's how we grow our podcast and if you want us to bring these amazing stories every week help us grow by sharing our podcast